Are you about to start a podcast or producing a podcast and tired of doing the editing yourself? We have produced over 1,000 daily shows and the production team that I've created, they're now available to produce shows for you as well. We can do as little or as much as you need from finding and communicating with guests, preparing introductions, to editing the audio and video. You will sound better, have a more professional presence, and be able to spend your time doing other valuable tasks on your business. Let me know you're interested by emailing me directly at Whitney at LifeBridgeCapital.com. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we have packed a few different shows together that we call Highlights to help you to get the most bang for your time and educating you on the topics that you want to learn from. We would love to hear from you. I am grateful that you are with us today. Have a blessed day. Our guest is Vic Mitta. Thanks for being on the show, Vic. Thanks for having me, Whitney. So would you say the biggest reason you got into retail is because you already had some small businesses in retail spaces, so you understood that type of real estate and maybe what that tenant would look for as well? Yeah, absolutely. That's why. And, you know, I was able to actually fill some vacancies with my own businesses, which, you know, helped propel the centers that I was buying back in, you know, 2009, 2010 that were vacant. And we put our own store in there and all of a sudden phone would start ringing from other users that would want to take up space. So we kind of just help accelerate the bring life back to the center, let's say, if you will. Nice. Well, let's dive into just retail in general a little bit. Maybe you can speak to, you know, that change you, you were talking about, or you, or you mentioned it's not dead, but it has shifted. Can you just speak to that a little more detail? Yeah. And more specifically, I mean, let's be clear, I'm not out there buying 1 million square foot shopping malls, you know, so I have some concerns with that space as well. But, you know, when you start talking about an outlet center to a grocery chain or to a Walmart, there's always going to be a need there. There's always going to be internet resilient tenants or pandemic resilient tenants that require space. Like I said, the medical users in particular are one that stand out. But then there's also retailers that people just can't wait to get their Amazon package, let's say, and they need something right away. There's always going to be a need for that retail space. Okay. You know, so those spaces are what you're looking for. Are you mostly looking like next to a Walmart or next to something like that? Can you show us or help us to build a vision of kind of the location of where your retail is your ideal piece of real estate in retail? Yeah, absolutely. My average building size right now is about 11,000 square feet. It's in an outlot of a Walmart. It's become a destination location for the community that it serves. So it may have users such as hair salons or nail salons in it. And then again, you know, maybe 25, 30% of the users might be local, some sort of medical users like dentists, for example, is one that really stands out. So that's kind of my niche. And then the other piece that I like to look for that where we could add value for our investors is an opportunity to, to add some tenants in it. So, you know, maybe the building's 90% occupied, 85% occupied. We've got great cash flow. We're certainly able to cover the debt. We're able to pay a healthy return to our investors and still add value to where we can turn the property around. Could you walk us through a little bit, the listener and myself, just thinking through, okay, we see this, this piece of retail real estate for sale. Maybe it is next to a Walmart or next to something like that. You know, just thinking through like the comp process and, you know, determining the value, maybe what you could possibly get there. When thinking through something like this, because you don't, you don't know what you, who your tenants are going to be, maybe at first if it's vacant, right? 
Could you walk us through that, just a few steps of that process, we could get a better understanding, uh, just to know, maybe up front, maybe the napkin type underwriting of a property like that, how do we, you know, do the first pass on on ensuring it's something we want to pursue or not? Yeah, I mean, typically, we're looking at the cap rates to start high level. But then once we start diving in, we want to see what kind of leases we're looking at, what kind of term is left on the leases, and more importantly, who's guaranteeing those leases. So if they're corporate back leases like the Starbucks, of course, that puts you a little bit at ease. But then if you're dealing with a mom and pop, maybe a franchisee of a national brand, you know, what's their experience? How many locations do they have? So diving into each individual tenant would be key because, yeah, we're not trying to go out there and then, you know, have people vacate and then we have to backfill the spaces. We want to buy centers that have a steady track record. Again, look when you're looking at the building itself, obviously the surrounding businesses help, like we talked about the Walmarts, but then also the access to the space, you know, how easy is it to get in and out of the center? You know, what's the visibility like as you drive by it? Because that'll all help determine the success of your tenants and and it'll help determine how long they're going to be able to stay and will, you know, ultimately determine the value of the asset. I know we briefly discussed it, but I wanted to ask you specifically, you know, the ideal piece of retail real estate right now For you, you know, who would be that tenant, you know, briefly, what would be the location? You know, what is that ideal piece of retail real estate that you see has the least amount of risk? For me, it's ideal would be 40% occupied by medical users, especially dentists. There's, you know, urgent care facilities are taking up more and more space in retail centers. And then from there, national name brands, ideally would be the best fit for what I look for. And then on average, about 15% of vacancy I actually like because I like to help pick out, you know, my own tenants that I want to see in there. And that's what adds the value to the building. So you're saying that there's value in actually having some vacancies so you can pick that next tenant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been able to build some great relationships with some brokers here that represent the tenants that have national name brands, a lot of franchisees that are looking to expand. So being able to go in and add value with them is what really helps me provide a return for my investors. Nice. Well, I was just thinking through some of this. I want to back up a little bit. I want to come back to our conversation right now, but I wanted to back up and say, maybe you could shed, I'm sure there's plenty of listeners that are thinking, well, what about through the pandemic through last year? What are some of the, you know, some of the things that happened to retail, maybe to your property specifically, anything you didn't expect or anything that we could learn from? Yeah. I mean, you know, with our restaurant users in particular, we did have some rent deferment that we had provided, you know, working with each individual to help them get through it. And, you know, we're fortunate. Everything's been paid back and, you know, everything has worked out great. So, you know, we got through that just fine. I can't think of one space that vacated because of the pandemic. So everybody seems like they're doing well. And as long as you work through it and, you know, are able to be a little flexible, you can get through things like that. Nice. What a blessing that everything was paid back. What do you, I guess, connect that to? Is that by having great tenants, a specific type of tenant, or some way you were prepared ahead of time? What was that? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that the business operators themselves were good operators at what they did. I'll say this, I wouldn't go in and bring in a new tenant that's a startup, let's say, you know, whatever the business might be. I like to see people that have some experience in the space that they're in. So, you know, I'm fortunate where our tenants that are local operators had good experiences and were able to weather the, you know, through the pandemic. Nice. Okay. No, I just, I know there's people wondering, right? Well, what happened during that time and, and how did you get through that? But that's an amazing outcome. 
For sure. I think the key is the flexibility, right? If you draw a hard line and say, hey, the lease is the lease and this is what we're going to hold you to, then you're going to have problems. That's where you're going to see the vacancies. But if you're flexible and able to work with them and, you know, deferment was the buzzword of 2020 and, and it's worked out and, you know, very quickly we were paid back by everybody. And now you've built probably a much stronger, even stronger relationship with those tenants, probably more loyal to you as well, I would hope. Absolutely. So what about, let's go back to say improving some of those properties. Any examples that you could share of just some things that you've done to improve the properties, increase the return, those things. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the last acquisition we just closed on, we're able to take a space that was just too large for, you know, for average user. So taking that space, dividing it up, taking it to the market as two divided smaller spaces. And I've already got LOIs for both of them. And this is, we're talking within 30 days. So we're able to fill the spaces much quicker by being able to work with tenants and kind of build them to suit their needs. So that's one way we've been able to add some value to the building right away. That's awesome. Yeah, thinking outside the box a little bit. And what about just the the type of returns investors should look to see, you know, in retail or maybe even the, just the deal structure in general versus, you know, multifamily opportunity? Yeah, one of the big things, you know, I want to touch on when you talk about what we do in particular is the cost segregation study. That's been a huge win for our investors. And what we're seeing is with that accelerated depreciation, I mean, they're able to write off so much of their investment instantly, especially this year with the changes that came out in the CARES Act to cost seg studies and the way that that's depreciated. So that's been a huge win. I mean, a lot of my investors are more interested in that than they are in the return. So they have a huge tax base that they need to worry about. So this has been a way for them to help offset some of that. Nice. I always say that that is a, a first world problem and a good problem to have, right? I have to pay taxes, but it, but it's a good problem. So thinking through, you know, needing cost seg study. No, that's awesome. What is the typical hold period for a retail, you know, investment like that? So mine is typically forecasted at seven years. So what you're seeing is that's when, you know, all your tenants are going to be in sort of some sort of option periods and they will have exercised their next renewals, et cetera. And they'll still have, you know, three to five years left on their term is a, is a good time to bring it back to market to sell. Nice. Are you doing like dual class structures, anything like that, like we see in multifamily? No, no, I'm only doing one currently. I've been pretty fortunate to be able to raise capital fairly easily. So I haven't had to get into that yet. What are some of the biggest objections and maybe even you know, kind of things that aren't true that people believe about retail or why maybe investors are not investing right now. And maybe it's just a lack of education, but you know, anything like that you could share. Yeah. I mean, it's just what you see in the media, right? Retail's dead because they're showing the big boxes moving out of the big mega malls. And that's the impression that everybody has, but you know, I think the key is you got to look at retail and break it down into different sectors within itself, right? Say, hey, yeah, there's a mall that I'm not telling you to invest in that, but then there's your neighborhood center that you go to on a regular basis. That building is not going anywhere. Those tenants are not going anywhere. You rely on them, they rely on you, and that's just the way it's going to be. So the landscape of the tenants might change, the type of users might change, but that building is going to stay there and that building is going to continue to be successful. Joining us today is Philip Block, who's one of the managing partners of LBX Investments. Formerly, Philip was a senior managing director at RealtyMogul.com, where he created the commercial lending business and led institutional capital market efforts. Prior to that, he was VP of Corporate Finance and Capital Markets at Centerline Capital Group, uh, has a BBA cum laude from George Washington University, and graduated with from the general course at the London School of Economics with a degree in finance. Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. 
if there's one myth that you would like to dispel today about investing in retail, specifically shopping centers, what would it be and why? Well, I don't want to get the the word out too wide. Prices might start going up. What you just said is absolutely true. We are contrarians by nature, Rob, Levy, my partner and I, I think. We understand multi. We come out of a large multifamily platform. Centerline was largely a multifamily uh, lender and investor. And what we've found is when everybody rushes to one side of the aisle or one group of capital, you know, and everybody's running away from retail or, or frankly, any bucket, there's opportunity. And so when we set out to figure out where we wanted to place our capital personally and where we wanted to invest, this is going back six years or so. All the talk was the retail apocalypse and, you know, CNN headlines about the death of retail and Amazon taking over. And, and what we found is that there's nuance to that. And Frankly, the last two years in COVID has proven out our thesis because we're able to buy shopping centers at, you know, we bought from seven to nine, 10 cap type pricing, depending on the asset location and kind of the, the makeup. And we've collected 100% rents. We've had a crazy leasing momentum. Almost all of our shopping centers are full. Um, in certain cases, you know, we're kicking tenants out and bringing in kind of better tenants or replacing things, selling out parcels. So we can hit double digit cash on cash in a rising interest rate environment and inflationary environment that we see today. We haven't found other asset classes where those dynamics are true. One of my questions, Philip, was related to COVID. And you kind of touched on this in your opening monologue. You know, in the multifamily side, we were all worried that our tenants were not going to pay. And then for better or for worse, the government stepped in and guaranteed rental payments or you know, gave massive amounts of assistance. And delinquency was never as bad as we feared and really never even concerning. Certainly dipped, but not that big of a deal. I was under the impression that retail as a whole, it really depended on what kind of retail you were in. Um, and so it was kind of a mixed bag. I'm curious the direct impacts that you guys saw from COVID and how that has informed your acquisition strategy since. As I said, I mean, you're right. It, it really was kind of confirming for what we've been doing. We And I want to be clear, retail, again, retail gets painted with kind of a broad brush. There's bad retail. Like, and there's too much retail and a lot of them. Somebody owns a lot of that stuff. And uh, you know, when I say it, I'm talking a C-mall anchored by JCPenney and Sears in the middle of America. That's like the fourth mall in an area with a shrinking population, right? Like, I, I don't want that either. And by the way, we get asked all the time. I'm going on a kind of a tangent, but I get asked all the time you know, why don't you buy that and redevelop it? I'm like, to what? Like, and, people, and then I have some investors tell me, well, we're buying this because we're at land value or below land value. And I said, what's land value? What do you mean? Isn't land value less than zero? You have to pay taxes if you can't do anything with it. So I stay very far from that. What we saw through COVID is, um, I think what similar in a sense to multi that you have kind of your mom and pop tenants, that got some level of government assistance and you have a bunch of service. You know, if you, if you own kind of good meat and potato service type guys and grocers. Grocers have done unbelievable, like the sales across the board at grocery stores, which you'd expect, right? They, people can't go uh, out to restaurants. So they started shopping more there. And, and what you've seen is like a Publix. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Publix, depending on where you are, but right, you, like throughout the Southeast and the biggest guy in, in Florida, their sales, and they've said this publicly, they don't expect a decline back to the levels of pre-COVID. And we're seeing it because a bunch of our tenants report sales. They've done tremendously and they continue to. 
So I think that what it's taught us is kind of stick with that. If you buy, you know, Target has done tremendously. If you're in the best retail and the best locations with growing populations, you know, a good grocery store with term and you own shop space, that's what you want. I think where people got really hurt in retail is kind of the C malls that I mentioned and the wrong box space. You know, there are big boxes that have struggled. There's no doubt. And that's what's made a lot of the headlines. And there are boxes that do fine, but the general trend is a shrinking number of users and a shrinking size kind of footprint for those boxes. You have to be careful that you don't overpay for too much rent in the wrong size box. And I think, you know, I mean, kind of to your point earlier, there's not that many, like most people are familiar with multifamily syndicators, probably not retail as much. And this is hard. We're professionals at this. I think kind of anybody can go buy an apartment building and get some friends to put some money in and you buy a hire a manager, right? And kind of clip. You can't do that in retail unless you want to lose all your money. Like you really need to be in the space every day, know exactly what the rents are, know how much it's going to cost to replace those tenants, who needs to be in that market, who's leaving the market. Those are the things we kind of focus on every day. Again, this is from an outsider's perspective, Philip, but I'm always curious with multifamily, one of the blessings and curses, depending on uh, where you're at in your cycle, is your leases come up fairly frequently. So you're, you're able to adjust to market and your loss to lease factor is not super significant. If you're managing it well, it's easy to close that delta. I would imagine when you're buying Buying a shopping center, I mean, a hefty part of your due diligence is going to be on the current lease file and what those look like. But are there ways where you can capture that kind of lost value if you've got significantly under market leases? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. So every tenant has, you have different structures. The larger tenants have long, typically longer term leases, but even then it's 10 or 15 years with options. And there's typically rent bumps, even on your, the only guys that don't have rent bumps sometimes would be a grocer who may have 50 years of kind of flat rent, which by the way, it's great to buy them towards the end of those, because then you typically can get, you know, you've got, you've got leverage. You're right. It kind of works both ways. You have in the, in the shop space, you may have two or 3% annual bumps, maybe every five years you get bumps. So you're not experiencing the same type of annual ability to bump rents like you can in multifamily. But the other side to that is that all these tenants pay our expense recoveries. So if you think about today's environment, an inflationary environment where rents are, are rising, which I'm sure is what you're kind of thinking about. So in multi, you get to reset those rents annually. True. And we get some of that. But on the, the bigger hit, to be honest, or the, the bigger impact in my view, and I think what we've seen historically, is the expenses erode more than your gain in multi in a high inflation environment. In retail, our taxes, insurance, and CAM gets passed through. So if you're well-occupied, you have no exposure to that. And all of your rent growth is kind of straight to the bottom line. So, I mean, that's a, a really fantastic way to invest in an inflationary environment. Yes, maybe you're not staying quite up to market, but if your expenses are flat and you've got fixed rate debt, I guess that would be the other key. If all your expenses truly are fixed, um, then you get to take advantage of that rising tide with very little downside. Yeah. And a lot, listen, a lot of our cash flow comes from credit tenants on signed leases. They're not, Publix is not going to stop paying you. Home Depot, Target, et cetera. They're not going to just not pay because the market stuff and multi we've had, listen, we've had a 20 year run, everything. I get why we're kind of comparing to multi and I'm doing it too, because that's what people know, right? But we've had an unbelievable run. We'll see how that goes over the next 
five or 10 years is it's when you buy it three caps and leverage at 6% and everybody's pocketbook feels lighter because of inflation and the Fed gets it wrong, which, you know, are likely to kind of on purpose and you have kind of a harder landing. Those dynamics can be tough in multi. You know, I'm looking forward to hopefully picking things up in multi that are cheap because I think it's a great investment class, but, you know, we might be in for some bumpy times. Yeah, I remember when I first started and I've been in this business very long, but you were looking at positive spreads between debt and your cap rate of, you know, maybe 100 to 125 basis points. And then that widened out to almost 200 basis points during COVID. And now it's flipped. Most of the projects that I'm looking at you're at least 50 basis points negative. If at some point cap rates are going to have to start reverting back up, and there's not really a way that they can stay down as far as they have. Now, there's a ton of capital out there. I think it's still a good investment class, but that's what makes retail intriguing to me is it's a little bit of the redheaded stepchild. It isn't maybe quite as easy, and yet there's significant growth opportunities in the right niches. I'm curious... How severely was liquidity affected during COVID for you guys? Just on the acquisition side, are there lenders that are comfortable continuing to lend during that process, getting comfortable with the individual assets? Or was it uh, a little bit of you know a go no, or no-go um, for a couple of months there? We had a year, I'm thinking just about a year where we bought nothing. And that was partly lender. I mean, I would say it was kind of lender driven in a sense, but the whole market froze. And so there were just weren't transactions. Now we were cash flowing and we were doing great, and, but I was bored on the acquisition side. And we were talking, we looked at some public companies and making larger plays. We looked, you know, we were talking to everybody, but almost across the country, you saw no trades during that period. I think there was the fear and thought that maybe there would be distress and opportunity. So there was some kind of element of people holding back, waiting for that. But yeah, lenders, the one major difference, multifamily, it will, at least for the foreseeable future, be supported by Fannie and Freddie. You know, when you've got government, effectively government guaranteed and subsidized debt. It's a tremendous thing. And and they and we that center line was a large agency lender. So we were a dust lender. Fannie and I mean it's just an amazing business and it, it provides so much liquidity in that space. You don't have that in retail. And I'm not a CMBS borrower. We are intentionally certainly leave money on the table with this, but to sleep better at night, we're we're not See it. We don't lock in kind of long-term fixed rate and deal with special servicers just to get leverage. I'd rather always be kind of lower leverage bank borrower, relationship type borrowers because in retail and commercial things come up, right? If something pops up, I call the relationship and say, Hey, this is what's going on. And we can sort through it um, very easily because they're all relationships. We've got big deposits with our banks and, you know, life companies are relationship guys. So it's been really beneficial to us now because we're borrowing 60, 65%. It's positive leverage. You kind of don't need that. Whereas multi, you know, obviously you're trying to get 75, 80 maxing leverage. It's all about residual value and refinancing in the future and, and earning it. You know, most of our returns come from cash flow because we're paying 10% a year. You know, it doesn't take that much. If you pay 10% a year, it just doesn't take that much appreciation to hit a pretty good return. Frankly, not did just fine. Yeah, most people, if you uh, told them you were going to get 10% a year, they'd be thrilled. Yeah, and tax adjusted, it feels really good. Do you guys do cost segregation studies on your facilities? We do. 
I wish I understood anything about it. You get it back and they like figure out how like what the, the lifespan of like the doors and the windows and stuff, I guess, on, on these shopping centers. But it's amazing, especially after the last uh, tax reform. I mean, you have you take most of it in the first year. And, you know, that's typically like three years of income that is that you take as a loss in the first year. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, the bonus depreciation. A lot of our investors it's one of the primary motivators for them to get into real estate is the fact that they can shield quite a bit of income, um, especially if you qualify as a real estate professional. So that's uh, exactly. So Philip, you've done quite a bit in the real estate world. What's been a key to your success over the years? Man, that's a good question. I, I well, we hope for more success. So I don't want to think of myself as too successful just yet. I honestly, I mean, there's different pieces to it, I think, but fundamentally partnering with good people like Rob, you know, Rob's a, just a close friend and a, and a great guy and has a, a ton of experience too. And working with people that you like and trust and do the right thing and buy good pieces of real estate and put on the right type of leverage and uh, you do just fine. And, you know, stepping aside from that, I think everybody's done pretty well over the last 10 years uh, or so. And, you know, real estate has fundamentally kind of gone up. But if you buy good real estate and you don't over leverage it, you do well in all times, right? You weather bad times, fine. And in good times, everything's great. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 